Before we get into this this morning, I thought that I really needed to get something off my chest. Now, a lot of people in the room today will have got Steve's April Fool's email last week. And if you didn't, it said that Ellsbury Vineyard Church was merging with the Church of England. And it's clear now that nobody on the staff team can let this go, me being one of them. I was brought up in the Church of England, you see, so I personally got very excited that finally I would be getting back to my old roots. So I thought I'd start this morning by sharing my disappointment when I realised that it wasn't actually true. So please see me afterwards if you want to form a Church of England breakaway group. I'll be stood over here by the connection points. No, joking apart, before anybody gets concerned, we're vineyard through and through. But bizarrely, bizarrely, and this bit is true, there was something in that email. It said I was going to Israel, and I was actually supposed to be going to Jerusalem the very next day, not to collect holy water, as the email said, but for a four-day trip. And it did get cancelled at the very last minute. And now I'm wondering, did the Church of England see Steve's email? And that's why my trip, therefore, was cancelled. And knowing Steve like I do, probably. So thanks for that, Steve. So, in true Anglican style, and not to be outdone, I thought that this morning we'd bring a little bit of the Church of England back into, uh, into this talk this morning. And just for once, we'd start with a Bible reading. So, if you can use your imagination, pretend you're sitting in a cold church on a hard pew with your coat on, and open your Bibles to the very first book, which is called Genesis, and we're going to be looking at chapter 32, and we're going to read from verse 22. Now, in my Bible, the translators have given this story a heading. They've called it, Jacob wrestles with God. But as we read it... We'll see, it says in this story, that Jacob wrestles with a man. And we we often see God represented as an angel, a, a divine messenger, speaking and doing things on behalf of God. We see the same thing happening, of course, in Genesis 18, where it says that, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then in verse 2, we actually find out that it was three men, three angels, And that's why one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Hebrews 13, 2, in the New Testament, which is the new bit of the Bible, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who've done this have entertained angels without realizing it. So now you get the picture. Let's read through that together. Genesis 32, verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. Then Jacob, all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. 
Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on in, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. The first thing that struck me about this was that Jacob was on his own when all this happened. He sent his family on ahead, and I'm not surprised. After all, he did have 11 children. So he probably, in fairness to him, wanted some alone time. I only have three children, and I know how that feels. The the second thing that struck me, verse 28, it says, Jacob won, which seems a bit odd. Had Jacob really beaten God in the form of this angel in a wrestling match? Surely God must have let him win for some reason. And it reminded me of how I used to pretend to... um, fight with my two boys when they were very, very little and how I used to let them win. However, old habits die hard, as they say. Sam and Ben are now 16 and 18. They're both six foot three, but they know it's still very foolish to play fight with their dad. And I can hear Rach, my wife, will often say, right, stop it now, somebody in a minute is really going to get seriously hurt. And it's not usually me that comes worse off. I always knew my police training would come in useful at some point, and my boys don't like it. But when they were little, I did make myself weak so they could win. And I think in this story, that's what God did for Jacob too. But the question is why? So fast forward for a moment to the story of Jesus A few hundred years or so later, he became weak and died for us on a cross for our wrongdoing. So, like Jacob, we could receive a blessing. And that blessing is an opportunity to say yes to a relationship with Jesus. Because of the sacrifice he made when he died and rose again for you and for me. Now, there's quite a lot of other stuff that we could, we could bring out in this passage, like the fact that Jacob was so desperate, desperate to, to, for God to bless him, that he was willing to wrestle with, with him like he did. And there's another sermon just in that for, for another time. But sometimes we need to wrestle with God, don't we? To show God that we are really, really serious, and we won't let go until we receive a blessing. But that's not what I want to bring out of this story this morning. Notice that it says in verse 31 that as a result of that experience, Jacob walked with a limp. He bore the scars, and somehow those scars were important. They became part of his identity. We don't know for sure whether Jacob recovered or whether he walked with a limp for the rest of his life, but I suspect that he he probably did. 
This is the passage John Wimber had in mind when he said, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. So anybody that wants to kick Steve at the end of the service because he hasn't got a limp currently, no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. By the silence, they might do that. (laughs) He was referring to the fact that we all get scarred. We all bear the marks because of life's hard knocks that we take sometimes. So the question is, what are we going to do with our scars? Are we going to allow them to weaken us? Or are we going to see them as empowering? Will they be for us a place of victory, a place of blessing as they were for Jacob? So that is what I want to continue to talk about this morning. I was tempted to ask you at the very beginning as I was preparing this talk to raise your hand if you've got a scar on your body, but I thought, you know what, that's probably a little bit personal, so let's not go there. So instead, I thought I'd share about my scars, my physical scars. My dad always said to me as a child that my body looked like the roadmap of Britain. And you know, although it's a slight exaggeration, he's not totally wrong. From the moment I was born, I had a very rare heart defect. So rare, in fact, that it took the hospital staff 18 months to realize what was wrong with me. My parents will often recall the pain and heartache, if you'll pardon the pun, that they went through as they were called back to my bedside time and time again to say their goodbyes because there was no way that I was going to make it through. As the months went by, the doctors continued to be baffled by this mystery illness, and it wasn't until I was about 18 months old that all of a sudden a doctor working on my case had this eureka moment. Through research, they found that I had a very rare heart condition called vascular ring. And to my knowledge, there are only two people in the world that have had this condition, and I am one of them. Now, not the best claim to fame, I hear you say, but that really is the only one I've got, so that's what I'm going to stick with. And sadly, my parents never had chance to meet the surgeon who performed my life-saving surgery to say thank you. And that's because he was flown from Italy to the UK to perform this operation as no doctor in 1974 knew how to do this. And as soon as he'd finished, he flew straight back out again. So as a result of that operation, I have scars on my ankles, I have scars on my arms, I have scars on my head, and I have one huge scar that runs from the top of my shoulder blade all the way around, down the back and behind, and it ends up here in the middle of my ribcage. And the surgeon who operated on my heart did so from my back and not through my chest, and the only thing I can presume that that must have been the Italian way. (laughs) After all, they are posers, aren't they? And I'm sorry if anybody is Italian in the room, but... So, that's how I got my nickname from my dad, who said I look like a roadmap of Britain on more than one occasion. So I have physical scars. Scars that are never going to go away. They are a part of me. 
And one last thing that I want to share about this story, that when I was so ill after this major surgery, some close family friends decided and felt the Lord press on their heart that they needed to pray over a handkerchief, as it says, if you look in the book of Acts 19, I think it's verse 11, where God used Paul in this amazing way, where Paul would pray over things like this. And they were touched, and then they were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured. And although I was still on a life support machine, the hospital staff just said, yeah, absolutely, go for it. And they laid this handkerchief on me. And my parents and all the hospital staff were totally amazed at the rapid rate in which I was healed and how my scar and how my scar had neatly turned out. And I believe that God blessed that act of faith as well as, of course, through that operation and the skill that that took to do that. So I will always have scars, scars that are never going to go away. I can't rub them out. The question is, what am I going to do with them? I can resent them if I want to. Or I could say, God, why? Why have these scars happened? Or I can decide to think about them differently. As Rick Warren says, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, if you've not read that, it's a great book. We are products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of it. So let me share with you what I did, because I decided long ago that I needed to do something with this scar thing. Because as a child, growing up, every time I was getting changed for PE, especially in high school and sport, I could guarantee that somebody would say, why have you covered in scars? So I said, right, Jesus, we need to come up with a plan. What are we going to do? So I boldly shared my story, which intrigued my friends. It made me feel special that I had gone through this time and managed to come out the other side. I felt like and still feel like that God had given me a second chance at life. And I shared my faith with my friends about how amazing the doctors had been with me and, of course, this handkerchief that was full of God's power. But I'm very conscious that, you know, we could talk about our physical scars all day, but we also have emotional and psychological scars too. And no doubt if I asked you to raise your hand, please don't, but if I did, I'm sure that you would probably put your hand up in the air because you have those kind of scars too. And guess what? So do I. So I decided to challenge myself this morning to share with you a story that I don't talk about very often. And I hope you'll see kind of why in a minute, because it's painful. It hurts, and if I get through without crying, then that will be a miracle in itself. This issue still impacts me today. It's a part of me. So you may or may not know, and if you don't, well, I used to be a police officer with Staffordshire Police. I saw and dealt with lots of things over the 14 years. But one job I went to will leave me emotionally scarred for life. It was the 23rd of December, 2014, when... My police partner, Tim, and I were called to a lady hallucinating in her apartment because she'd taken an overdose of cocaine. 
And on that day, we, we dealt with her the best we could, and we got our attention she needed from the medical crew. And as we were leaving, as we were just walking out of this ground floor apartment down the hallway, I said to Tim, if there's a fire in here, it's going to be horrendous. Because there was stuff everywhere. There was furniture and books piled high and all sorts of things. And, and Carol was muttering to herself as she, as she did, and she was trying to usher us out of the door. And two hours later, we were called back to Carol's flat because, unbelievably, there was a fire. And she was trapped. She barricaded herself in, and she was refusing to leave. But not only that, what made matters worse is that Staffordshire Fire Service were on strike that day. And they'd only come out from home if people were trapped. And we didn't realize that, obviously, as we left, that Carol had refused to go to hospital with the medical crew. Instead, what she'd done is taken more drugs. So she'd got even more cocaine in her system. And she thought that people were trying to get to her, which clearly wasn't true. And when we got there, the flat, it was ablaze. It was horrendous. There was thick black smoke everywhere, and we had no choice to get her out. And I now know what that feels to, to, to be overcome by smoke inhalation when you're trying to find your bearings to get out of somewhere. But we refused to give up. We, we were determined to get Carol out. And because we were so stretched that day, as you often hear about the police force being stretched in many different ways, we only had one extra colleague to help us because everybody else was on a 999 thing. And we took it in turns to fight our way down the hallway through the thick black smoke. And we tried to smash our way through the lounge door, but, well, but, but it was no use because what we didn't realize is that she'd put a piano and a sofa up against that wall. Up against the door, sorry. And there was, there was no way we could get in that way. We tried to then run outside and smash the ground floor double glazed window. But it wouldn't smash and the heat was just intensifying. And in the 14 years as a 999 response officer for the police force, I found myself in some pretty sticky situations. But this was different. I was desperate, desperate, and I found myself crying out to God in a loud voice as we tried to prise this UPVC window out of the frame. I said, come on, God, please. And as I did so, and at the point of almost giving up, and out of sheer exhaustion, the window just fell out. And Carol just flopped onto the window ledge like a, like a burnt rag doll. And we tried, to, we tried to haul her out through the windowsill, over the window ledge. But, but, and then this thick black smoke was just continuing to bellow out. But we couldn't because the skin had melted. And we tried to grab the back of her jeans. And it, it's just, it's in my head now as I think about it, that as we tried to pull her out of the window, the jean material just disintegrated, like literally to nothing. And it seemed like forever, but eventually the fire service did turn up and we took Carol to hospital and that's where we fought with her again in the ambulance and because she got so much cocaine in her system and we fought with her in A&E until they managed to give her some drugs to get her under control. And although a few months later at an awards ceremony we were, we were honoured as heroes, could never make up for the emotional scars of that day. And sadly, three months later, Carol died 
of 46% burns at Birmingham's Special Care Burns Unit. And at the inquest, they ruled that Carol's death was due to misadventure and a massive overdose of cocaine. And for me, having then to go back to coroner's court at the inquest to, to read my statement in front of her parents about their little girl, even though she was 26 years old, who'd had a lovely childhood, holidays in Cornwall with a, a loving family around her all the time, somehow just went off the rails. And they embraced me after, and I found myself crying and apologizing, saying that I'd failed them and I, I couldn't get her out. And it was my fault. And then that's how it feels sometimes. Those emotional scars will stay with me forever. And even though that's nearly five years ago, since I left the police, in quiet moments, those feelings come rushing back to haunt me. Simple things like, you know, when you light a fire or you, know, you go to a bonfire or something like that. That incident will never leave me. It's now a part of me. I can't change the past. But as Rick Warren said, I don't have to be a prisoner of it. And I know that's what God is saying to me as well. We are all products of our past. We all bear those scars. But the question is, what are we going to do with them? To my mind, I have some choices to make. I can choose to let it dominate my life. I can choose to hold on for it to ever and never try and let it go. I can choose to never forgive myself, even though Carol's parents told me at the inquest that I did everything that I possibly could to help their daughter. I can choose to harbor the guilt, that feeling that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't worthy to do my job anymore, that it was all my fault. I could blame myself continually for mentioning to Tim and to Carol as we walked out of the apartment that the hallway was an absolute fire hazard. Did she hear me? Did she hear what I said? Did I put that idea in her head? I don't know. Had she taken too much cocaine to know what she was thinking or what anybody else was saying? Or do I have different choices to make? Do I then make a conscious choice to do all the opposite of those things? It feels like I have to make a choice. What am I going to do with my emotional scars from that incident? God's not going to make me. I have to choose to do that. And I was reminded of when Moses was standing before the people of Israel, just as they were about to enter into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, he says, Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life. So I decided long ago that I wanted God to show me how to use this dreadful situation to help somebody else maybe in some way. So the choices I made... To give him my guilt and my shame and my brokenness and my heartache and my words and my actions on that night and how I feel even now in this very moment. I can give it all to Jesus. I can and I will give him those scars. 
and I can choose, and I can choose to respond to him in the way that Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, where it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And he said, Here I am, send me. And I will choose to say that, even though it hurts me still. Even now, I'm going to make the decision to ask God to show me how or who I can help through this experience. The title of today's talk is Known by Our Scars. And that's kind of said with a a question mark because the question God asked me, and I think the question that he may be asking many of us today is, how are we going to be known by our scars? We all get scarred. We all bear the marks of the things that happen to us in life. So the question is, what are we going to do with them? Are we going to settle for them defeating us? Or let them empower us? Will we, will we allow them by God's grace to be a place of victory and a place of blessing as they were for Jacob, as we read earlier? Now, some of you will have been through far worse situations than me. And when you think about those situations in your own lives that hinder you and that that hurt you and that weigh heavy on your heart, that scar you emotionally and psychologically, those scars that repeat themselves over and over again, that go round and round in your head, I ask you today to choose to invite Jesus into those situations, to to allow him into those times. To choose also then to leave them at the foot of the cross. Because to my mind, we have nobody else to leave them with other than him. And of course I can go for counselling. And of course it can be useful. And it's a great practical tool for so many people. And that's a good thing to do. But the Bible tells us in, in 1 Peter to cast all our cares on him because he cares for you. So maybe it's time that we see our scars differently. Maybe it's time for us to allow our scars to be a place of empowerment and blessing and healing. Let me leave you with one last thought, and then in a moment I'll get Andy and the team to come back and move us into some ministry time. Let me share this with you. I love this. I looked up scars on Wikipedia just to see what it said and thought, thank you, God, this is great. Scars result from the biological process of wound repair as well as in other organs and tissues of the body. Thus, very posh, scarring is a natural part of the healing process. Scarring is a natural part of the healing process. Just let that sink in for a minute. I just find that amazing. And when I read it, it kind of made me think about something else as well. It made something else start to make sense. Sometimes I'd wonder about this John chapter 20, when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples, um, that he still bared the scars after his crucifixion. The resurrected Jesus, who sits with his Father in heaven, still has his scars. 
the nail marks in his hand and, and, and the wound in his side. And, and I always kind of wondered why. Why was that? And I realized it's because Jesus' scars were for our healing. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 5 that by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. And the apostle Peter picks this up in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2, he says, also, by his wounds, you have been healed. Andy, wonder if I could borrow you again. Thank you. So, known by our scars, let's say that without a question mark. Because our scars are what they are. They're part of our history. The only question is, how are they going to affect our future? You may say, oh, well, that's very well, James. Thanks for that. But Jesus didn't have emotional and psychological scars like me. But I don't think that's true. You see, Isaiah 53 says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It also says in Hebrews 2, 17, it says that Jesus had to be made like us in every way, in every way, apart from sin. And the good news is that there's a God in heaven this morning, the resurrected Jesus, who knows exactly what it's like to be me, who bears the scars of human life just like I do. But they're scars of victory and blessing. A cross that looked like weakness and defeat turned out to be the complete opposite. And to paraphrase Joseph in Genesis 50, when what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. My dad may have said many times that my scarred body looked like the roadmap of Britain, and he wasn't wrong. But now it's a roadmap to God's blessings through those scars. So, are we going to allow those scars? Are we going to allow Jesus' scars to absorb our scars? To heal our scars? To turn our scars out for something good? Will we choose to share the experience of of how we came about our scars with those that may be suffering in some way? Will we choose to show the love of Jesus in a world that's scarred? Will we choose to give hope to someone who feels like there is no hope? Will we choose to allow our scars to be a source of blessing and healing and victory in other people's lives? Are we prepared today to be known by our scars?